Hello and welcome to the Emergent Ecosystem, a Zimbabwean podcast about ecosystems, how they support our livelihoods, and how we can steward them to create a better future. I'm Scott Richardson, and here's a soundbite from the episode. How extraordinary people are, and how desperate people are to solve this problem. And I don't think that's the narrative that emanates from cities about what's happening in rural areas. There is a desperation to solve this problem. Find the Emergent Ecosystem on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Alexa, Podcast Go, or on the Podbean app. Subscribing on any of these apps will mean that you receive the podcast as soon as it falls. Alternatively, follow the Emergent Ecosystem on Facebook. Now, woodlands are a very important part of the economy in Zimbabwe, providing the energy needs for many households and businesses, resulting in widespread deforestation. One of the ways we can address this is by replanting trees. But reforestation projects often fail. So today we'll discuss why projects fail and how to make an effective reforestation strategy. My guest today is an ecologist, philanthropist and musician. She completed her BSc Honours in Zoology at the University of Cape Town. Then she studied philosophy at Arupa University in Harare. She's the group ecologist at Rift Valley working on reforestation. She also runs the My Trees Trust, an initiative started by Rift Valley through Northern Tobacco to provide businesses and individuals a structure enabling people to plant trees. Speaking from the forests in Vumba, Claire Griffiths, welcome to the show. Such a pleasure being here. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, it really is a beautiful spot out here in the Vumba. So Claire, tell us, what do you do? I'm an ecologist. I'm at present working for Rift Valley. I'm a group ecologist there and running a number of reforestation endeavors, amongst other things, but very heavily weighted towards reforestation, my work. What got you interested in reforestation? I think for the 12 or so years prior to that, I was working a lot in non-timber forest products. Which Sorry, what are those? Non-timber forest products. It's um, everything other than timber in a, a tree. So if you were looking at baobabs, the best way possibly to conserve a baobab is for it to have financial worth that doesn't involve cutting the tree down. So it involves setting up industries that center on trees, or well, for me it was trees, but things in the environment a lot of them are pharmaceutical or health values in other areas or cosmeceutical oils you help businesses be set up around communities they tend to be very poor communities and people in that in those communities will make their living off sustainable harvesting and processing of products from trees but that mean that the trees have to be left in the ground and actually it's very auditable and manageable so the best way to save trees is for them to have a financial value. I was working in that for about 12 years but at present we're losing 10 million trees a year in Zimbabwe which equals an area the size of Wales every five years and at some stage you have to address that elephant in the room and try to be involved in saving the areas that are being deforested so quickly. So I stopped non-timber forest product work, which was, my work was all centered in the drier parts of the country, regions four and five. And then I moved into the slightly wetter areas where 
this massive deforestation is happening. Sure, very interesting. And have you always been passionate about plants? I have. When I was younger and far less mature, I remember saying to my mother, I'd got into zoology and botany honors courses, and I'd say, no, why would I work with plants when I could work with animals? And now everything I dream about is plants. <laughs> so it took me a while to move away from the glamour of animals and look at the, the base of everything, which is plants. So always been passionate, but I used to be more passionate about animals than plants. Now working as an ecologist at Rift Valley, what do you do? Well, they were amazing. They pretty much gave me free reign at the beginning. I'd contacted them and said that they need to be part of reforesting. And they said, all right, well, show us what you can do for six months and then we will look at it from there. So I got permission to work in an area in the north of the country where massive deforestation is happening. I got an MOU with the Rural District Council and Zambezi Society to be allowed to work with communities to start a ground-up reforestation project. Most reforestation projects in third world countries don't work. And when you do a literature survey of why they haven't worked, it tends to be, well, there, there are four things that that are important in any endeavor and it's, it'll be the financial capital, the physical capital, the knowledge capital and the human capital and projects tend to fail in the area of investing in human capital, investing in, in people and I had been aware for a long time about the problems associated with log frame approach to, uh, to projects which is putting everything in this logistical framework that might not actually be asking the questions that are required. It's not a one frame fits all, but a lot of projects fail because they're not asking the questions that on the ground in community should be asking. And projects tend to be quite prescriptive, not ground up, but bottom up, going into a community and saying, what is it you're wanting? How can we solve this together? How can we put your huge amount of knowledge that people in rural areas obviously have? They've lived there all their lives. It's their home. They're fully invested in that place. I might bring a little bit of knowledge capital because I'm a scientist um, and because I've got access to that, but I'm such a small part of solving the problem. I'm happy to embrace the fact that I'm only a small part of that. So when I was talking to Rift Valley about this, that it's investing in human capital, investing in doing something that was a ground-up approach to solving the problem, they said, okay, well, show us what you can do. So basically I got to spend a lot of time living on top of the hill underneath the mozzie net in the community and just getting to know people in that community and asking the old men, what is it that they want? What do they remember from when they were young? And it was obvious from the beginning that, well, people were saying, we don't want to be losing our trees. We don't know what we can be doing about it how can we do something about that but how can we do it together not me go in there and tell people what to do and some interesting things came out of that from the beginning that people in rural areas didn't actually realize you can plant indigenous trees they're used to planting 
fruit trees that are brought in or exotic gum trees or, well, all gum trees are exotic here in Zimbabwe, but bringing things in and planting those, people had been used to the fact that indigenous trees actually replant themselves. But now there's so much more pressure on them that those trees need to be planted and nurtured and stewarded within those communities. And in the areas that I'm working, people rallied round immediately with this new concept of planting indigenous trees. And the question was, what am I doing there? Basically now in I've got uh, 12 nurseries in this area where we've got 150,000 trees and little nurseries for this year's planting. The trees that we planted in the last rainy season, which is eight months ago, we've had a 98% survival rate of those trees and they're looking good for the next few months till the next rains arrive. And we've had people in the communities come forward with far more land than we can possibly plant this year, but we need to walk before we can run. So we're planting out 150,000 trees this year and stewarding about another 8,000 hectares in that area. But we want to get a solid base and solid metrics to show that it's working, you know, and get a narrative of, of success before we try to expand past that. Thanks, Claire. Your idea is that the human capital is the most important thing to focus on to get the results you're trying to achieve. I think that it's the area that we tend to fail most often rather than it's more important than the others. You obviously need to have the knowledge. You obviously need to have enough financial backing to make it happen. If you have too little or too much, I think it can fail. I don't mean financial capital should just be as big as it can be. I think it's got to be the right size fit. And I think physical capital, you've got to have the land and you've got to have the water that's needed. You, you need those things. But the one that tends to be neglected is investing in human capital. It's as if we think that we can come from the outside and we know more than somebody who lives in an area. And the truth is we don't. We know different things. We don't know the needs of the people in that area. If I went to an area and I said I'm only working with women because the framework I'm working with says that we've got to work with women and I don't fully understand the nature of the land tenure there. Women do not own the land in the areas that we work. They don't. Their husbands own the land. And if you don't understand how a particular woman, if you don't understand that she's very unhappily married and that if I work with her, the project's going to fail because if her husband doesn't want it to work, it's going to fail because I haven't invested in that human capital. So I think if I plant a tree that I think it's perfect to be used for fuel wood and nobody in that area feels comfortable burning on that wood because they don't know it, it's not familiar. It's, it's, if I haven't spent the time investing in that understanding of the human needs there, it'll fail. So every other duck could be perfectly aligned. And if I don't invest in that, and that I think, I'm not saying it's more important, I'm saying it's the area we tend to fail in. That's brilliant, Claire. So you're working with people to set up these nurseries. Once these trees have grown in the nursery, what's the next step? Yeah, that's a good one. There's not a single answer to that. 
when I went into Hurongwe where I'm working, there were areas that we had seen were completely decimated. There was very little left. There were areas that the trees are being pulled out very quickly and there are areas that are bare around fields. There are areas that are close to villages that all the wood was just taken out for woodlots. So what, what I put together was different types of deforestation. If less than 20% of the original trees in an area are left, that area will not regenerate by itself. You have to intervene to restore them. And I call those areas reforestation areas. Aforestation is where you put trees where there hadn't been trees before. So we're reforesting. If there's less than 10% of the original trees, I call that area reforestation. We've got a strategy for that. We will grow a number of different species. We don't intimately plant. Intimate planting is where, say you had, for argument's sake, say you had five species of trees that are meant to be in that area. They're not exotic trees. They're trees that are meant to be in that type of soil, that type of land. Say I had five. I wouldn't plant species one, species two, species three, species four in a, in, in rows or something like that. I plant trees together with their friends. So trees tend to do better when they grow with trees of the same species. So we don't intimately plant. And if there's between 10 and 30% of the original trees left there. We have a strategy we call interplanting. So the trees that are there, we leave them. But in between those, initially at four or five meter intervals, we, we plant other trees in the spaces where trees have been removed. Then because a lot of the areas, the land is very degraded, especially around fields, we're, we're getting people to plant a lot of thorn trees a lot of what used to all be acacias, they're now various things, they're leguminous and they're nitrogen fixes, they're putting back into the soil. So we're planting those around a lot of fields. When I say we, it's not an organization coming in, it's the communities and myself. We plant together, we, we do this together. It's not outside people coming in and, and doing it. It's community-driven, community-owned. And... Um, Actually, in those areas, on the books, we call them interlinking corridors, joining all these fields together. But in the areas, we call them hedgerows because everyone was saying, please bring us information from outside. And in amongst these, somebody picked up on hedgerows in the UK and how hedgerows are so important. So everybody is saying they want hedgerows around their fields to join them up to other areas and join areas of forests together of woodland together through these hedgerows between the fields. So the communities are desperate to plant hedgerows between these different areas of woodland. And I think this year we'll probably get about 250 different hedgerow systems in. So oh, wow. I know. <laughs> so, so cool. I've, I've got more than 250 people signed up, but I really can't. We can't supply enough to do more than 250 hectares of hedgerowing. And then we're looking at building working woodlots. We ask people in the communities what they would like and what trees were useful for, for their fires. You can't be planting trees and not be addressing the fact that trees are needed for, for firewood because it's unrealistic. Whilst on another plan, we're trying to sort out the uh, cutting down on wood fuel use. It's still a, a very real thing. So we're planting 
usable woodlots and a lot of the plants are medicinal or they um, indigenous fruits and there's a high wood fuel component in that so people we're growing these and people can come and sign up for a hundred trees this year and if these hundred trees are looking good next year they can have another hundred trees but I'm not giving people trees and saying plant these and walking away the people are coming and saying we want this and if they're successful then they can have another hundred we will make sure we've grown enough in our nurseries in the communities to supply the nurserymen say they don't want to grow trees for people who aren't going to look after them so they're saying if we're growing trees they've got to be looked after by people if they want another hundred trees next year so we're doing woodlots and then we're doing stewardship that that's a that's some mango monkey in the background, by the way. And the final thing we're looking at is we're stewarding areas that trees have been cut down, but those areas will regenerate by themselves. Where the trees are coppicing, we'll make sure the coppice is managed and that we've neatened off the cuts so that the trees don't rot from the roots down. So that's the five different plans at the moment. Okay, so they are... Reforestation areas. Interplanting. Yeah, so the hedgerows. Hedgerows are separate to interplanting. Interplanting oh, okay. is where some trees are have been left, but it needs some help to buff up the numbers back into a, a okay. woodland. So reforestation, interplanting, hedgerows, usable woodlots and stewardship areas. All right. So it's not a sort of cookie cutter. It's very much a what's happening and then responding to the environment on the ground absolutely we obviously have to have a general plan saying we it'd be really good to do this much into planting this much this you know so that we know how many trees we should be growing how much need we can meet but you, you we need to be malleable enough to as you say to respond to what's happening on the ground so it is quite flexible but the strong underlying plan. Sure, that's that's great, Claire. You've also been part of developing my trees. What is my trees, and what do they do? Okay, so when we went to work in Hurungwe District and got an MOU with the Rural District Council, we did that with another organisation called Zambezi Society. They're very big up there, and. The reason you do that is you're coming new into a communal area and people don't know you at all. They, they don't know who you are. They don't know what your organization means. So to come in with, in this case, Zambezi Society, who've had a footprint in that area for a long time, basically they're saying, yeah, we, we know these people. They're going to do what we think. We can trust them. We're going to work together. It's, it's like an affirmation in a way. So we had an MOU with Zambezi Society because a lot of our goals are exactly, we're aiming for the same common goal. There are many different ways to get there. We're aiming for the same common goal. So we called the project the My Trees Project or the Mitiyangu Project, Mitiyangu Shana for My Trees, because the trees that are being planted are not owned by the company. A person planting the trees those trees will belong to that person who can say they're my trees, you know, Miti Yangu, Miti Yedu, our trees, my trees. So that that was the name on the grounds of the project, um, the My Trees project. But it's been gaining traction 
very, very quickly and um, right all the way across Harungui, right very far west in other wards. I've been working mainly in ward 7 and 8, but right across the ward 24, everybody's saying, please, please, please come help us, help us, help us. We need to expand past that. So what was a project within Rift Valley has been put into its own trust so that there's room for expansion past the boundaries of Rift Valley so that other companies can come in and be part of this trust, part of replanting, whether it's through corporate social responsibility or other companies with tobacco interests saying, well, we're very worried about the tree issues. Let's let's invest in the MyTrees Trust. So what MyTrees was in the beginning was a small project to say, look, we want to grow trees that are owned by the communities, cared for by the communities, right from the beginning, germinated by the communities and solving the needs of the people in those areas. They're trees that are planted by communities for communities, hence the my trees, that they're not owned by us. And then it's turned into something much bigger. As of the last few weeks, it's now a trust and other organizations are beginning to look at investing in that so that we can expand to meet the needs of the people in, say, Ward 24, Ward 15, Ward 12, um, all the way across that Mashonland West area at, at the moment. So, yeah, that's what the Maitreys project is. Now the Maitreys Trust. Sure, so that's great, Claire. You've made a way for more people to get involved in your project. Absolutely, and it's it's the way... I think we're going to have to go in the future because, you know, you and I are sitting here in the middle of this incredible forest and it looks like it goes on forever and it's perfect. But we're sitting right here, right now today, in the middle of the Anthropocene, which is the world's sixth mass extinction. A mass extinction is when you lose more than 75% of all species on Earth. And at present, we're losing 12 species a day and we will lose no matter what we do, we're going to lose... 26,500 species and there's an urgency now like never before there's a small window of opportunity if we don't make things open enough to be inclusive to solve a problem if especially if we see that we're making some progress then we're not going to get on top of this and I, as I see it there's so many things to do we all have so many different talents different abilities and there's so many facets to solving this problem. We have to work together in an inclusive way. And the people I work with have, I'm not sure if I should be saying names or not. Um, two of them, I think, are very visionary about the need to solve this problem. And they've worked tirelessly to turn this into a trust so that other people can become involved because it really looks like this particular project is gaining traction. So, yeah, very, very excited that it's turned into a trust, very excited that there's potential for other people to invest and other people to work with me in this landscape because especially if something is relational, you cannot lose that touch. You cannot lose that personal touch on the, on the whole thing. So it's going to need to employ more people, need to yeah, and employ more people who are happy to sit on the hill and get to live in a community and and know people's families and know people's fears. And, well, actually, it's a privilege. I've never felt so privileged as I have this last year. I've, 
I'm digressing slightly, but I've always loved the jobs I've done. I've been lucky enough to follow jobs I'm passionate about my whole life. But I've never felt so humbled and in awe of people as I have this last year. In the face of unbelievable adversity, how resilient and how extraordinary people are and, and how desperate people are to solve this problem. And I don't think that's the narrative that emanates in cities about what's happening in rural areas. There is a desperation to solve this problem and a desperation to be just given a little bit of direction, but all the will is there to sort it out. Sure, that is quite a different narrative to what we generally hear and sometimes think here. But one final question, Claire. If you could imagine the best world... How would it be? I think that when you're on the brink of something and you have to re-examine where you're going, and I think humanity is at that place right now, knowing that in 40 years' time we will peak at about 9 million people. It'll go slightly above that and then probably drop down a little bit. But there's a lot of traction in the fact that we realize that we are at a point that we have no choice but to make changes in our lives and it's not by chance that the whole world's heard of Greta but it's not by chance that my rural areas are desperate to solve this problem. Recently I asked for 15 kilograms of seeds to be collected and it looks like three quarters of a ton of seed were collected without the expectation of being paid for those seeds. It was an indication of the desire to solve the problem an indication of an understanding of how big the problem is. For me, the best case future would be that we actually do not become overwhelmed with what lies ahead of us because it is going to require austerity to sort out a world where 9 billion people will live whilst keeping enough natural world that we aren't without any spirituality in our environment so that we're not living in a sterile or worse future. And for me, the best case scenario for a future is that voices of people wanting to make this difference are heard without cynicism and reacted to, and that we start living a life that's responsible enough to coexist, nine million humans, which we will get to, with a world around us part of an environment, not apart from the environment, realizing that it's not only humans who have the right to live here, but we're only part of an ecosystem. The best future for me would be that we, we learn to live as part of an environment, not owners of a space. All right. Well, thank you very much, Claire. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. You're such an inspiring person. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Ditto. That was Claire Griffiths, Group Ecologist at Rift Valley. You can learn all about the My Trees Trust at www.mytreeszim.org. That's M-Y-T-R-E-E-S-Z-I-M dot O-R-G. The Zambezi Society also has a website, www.zamsoc.org, that is Z-A-M-S-O-C dot O-R-G. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast if you think others would benefit from it too. 
Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, cheers.